0: It's really a privilege and an honor to be able to open the word to you this morning. Such a joy uh, to be among you and to to be able to share God's word. I'm deeply grateful and I'm especially thankful that Colin selected the Psalms as our summer theme for preaching. You know from my experience here at Redeemer that I love the Psalms, I've taught classes on the Psalms. There are things in particular about the Psalms that are really important for us to know. As I've done studies on the Psalms, I found that all of the 16th and 17th century Protestant commentators made two comments about the Psalms. They said number one, the Psalms are like a little Bible, they're a compendium, an anthology of the whole Bible. They summarize it. So Luther said this, I have the notion that the Holy Spirit wanted to take the trouble himself to compile a short Bible, a book of examples of all Christendom and of all saints, so that anyone who could not read the whole Bible would here have, anyway, almost an entire summary of it comprised in one little book. The second thing that these Protestant reformers, as they commented on the Bible, would say about the Psalms, is that the Psalms express all of the feelings that we have in our heart. They're all there. Uh, way mentioned this two weeks ago. The Psalms have this way of expressing everything that we feel. And in fact, there are times when, if we pick up a Psalm and we pray it, we say that that doesn't feel like me today. That's okay because it's God's word as well as at the same time, our word back to God. It's very unique in the scriptures. And because it's God's word, there are times where those feelings and emotions and expressions that are in the Psalms don't match with where we're at, but that's okay. Because our emotions and our feelings are not for front and center. You know, God's agenda is. And so God can form us and shape us through the Psalms. That's why the singing of the psalms became the distinguishing feature in the Protestant Reformation among those reformed in France, Scotland, the Netherlands, throughout much of Europe. The singing and the praying of the psalms was the distinguishing feature. It's why Dietrich Bonhoeffer said in the 20th century, whenever the Psalter is abandoned, an incomparable treasure vanishes from the Christian church. With its recovery will come unsuspected power. That's why I'm glad that we're hearing God's word this morning and hearing from the Psalms. This morning's text is Psalm 96. And I would be glad to read that. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, speak, Lord. Your servants are listening. Through Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. I begin by asking you a question this morning. What is it that gives you hope? What is it that is sustaining you in life through the ups and downs? I ask this question to you because as I've been actually reading some novels, I've been reading through Dostoevsky's major novels, And I had to read about him in his biography, and I learned some really fascinating things. When he was a young man, he was involved in an intellectual circle of people. They were discussing, just like college students today, they were discussing big ideas, and some of those ideas were not in line with the czar of Russia. And uh, these young, we might call them radicals, were just young men thinking about uh, what it meant to be a government and a people. So Dostoevsky is associated with them, and this group gets in trouble. They're, they're arrested for sedition, and they're brought before a, a firing squad. You know, they're tied up. they got guns, guys pointed right at them. They're about to shoot them, and all of a sudden, a messenger comes and says, Wait, wait, stops the execution. It's a mock execution. They didn't know it. But then they were told that they were were given a reprieve, but then they were told they were going to jail, to Siberia. Dostoevsky went there for four years. He had a Bible, but it was stolen from him the first day. He was blessed, though, because some visitors came and brought him a New Testament with the Psalms. And he hid that under his pillow. And his wife, years later in her memoirs, Commented on this. She said, during that entire four years of his imprisonment, he never allowed himself to be parted from this holy book. She said, 20 years later, when he recalled his sorrows and his mental anguish, she told one of her uh, husband's biographers, he used to say that the gospel was the only thing that kept hope alive in his heart. Only in that book did he find support. Whenever he resorted to it, he was filled with new energy and strength, the hope of the gospel has that kind of power to sustain someone in one of the worst places imaginable. That's why I ask you the question this morning, what is the hope of your heart? What encourages you? I have to tell you this morning, being in in this place at this time in this world, it's discouraging. I find it really discouraging. When I look at the political landscape today and if I read the newspaper or, you know, even watch TV for a brief moment, it's discouraging. I get really disoriented in the world. And I thank God that I can come here to get reoriented. You know, isn't that, isn't that we're talking about ordinary means of grace? God gives us grace in an ordinary way as God's people gather we come distracted and disoriented. And life has a way of really being jarring, and especially what we're hearing today as we watch the news. So I find it difficult, and sometimes I think some of you might be saying, why am I here? You know, maybe some of you didn't even want to be here, but you were forced to come here. The Psalms warn us about that kind of deception that's out in the world, the lies, the false speech. It's very common in the Psalms. But it's, as I said, very disorienting. It kind of reminds me when I was in junior high, high school, whatever, 14, 15, I had a clock on my wall. Now, I had kind of a goofy sense of humor, okay? So this clock is a clock that ran backwards, and the numbers were flipped. And so I had to learn how to read the clock but one time it was in the winter and i had after school i was tired i fell asleep i woke up it was dark and i didn't know what where i was I, and i could hear my mom in the kitchen i was like what what's going on is she getting ready for, you know breakfast and you know so i didn't i couldn't really what is the clock saying is it what time is it I was disoriented. I didn't know where I was. I didn't know what time it was. I was confused. I think the world is kind of like that. And I think after all these the messages we hear all throughout the week, you know, if we're on our phones, we're getting all kinds of messages. If we're if we're watching the news, if we're watching TV, whatever it is, all these messages, marketing messages, and they're all saying you're on your own. There is no god. The world is on its own. So go figure it out yourself. And if you have to figure it out yourself, you might as well make as much money as possible and buy as many toys as possible and have as much fun as possible as long as you can. That's the message. So I need help. I need to be reoriented. This Lord's Day worship does that, and the scriptures do that. If you were in the class I taught in the Psalms, we we noticed that the word law or Torah in the Old Testament means kind of like a javelin. It's a sharp object. It could be something that's thrown, that hits the target. And the idea is God's word, when it speaks to us, it hits the target. It gets to our hearts. Isn't that why the writer of Hebrews says the word of God is living and active? It's sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning of the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's what drew me to the scriptures when I was a kid. I would read and go, wow, this thing knows me. That's true. That's real. That's the way God's word is. And so we come this morning to Psalm 96, to be reoriented from a world that is very disorienting. And it says to us something that just shocks us almost, if you think about it. Just sing to the Lord a new song. What? Sing? Excuse me, but I only sing things that are personally touching on my heart. You know, that's when I sing. So when I was uh, younger and my you know, going on vacation, you know, you'd I was so excited, not that I didn't like my work, but I was so excited to be on vacation. I started singing, and I would play songs in the, the car, and the kids got to learn my songs, and it was fun, and, and they noticed that. They noticed that I was singing because I was happy. Singing is very personal. We sing when we're really happy. We sing when we're really sad, but it's not something that you can fake. You, it's not you can't be artificial about it. Well, I mean, you can be in a choir and sing and not really feel it. I've I've done that in high school. I sang watermelon when I didn't know the words. It all worked. But singing is very personal and it's very powerful. Even Plato said it has the ability to raise up the passions and then to lower them down as well. Sing to the Lord. And this singing that they're talking about is very, very comprehensive and cosmic, isn't it? It's an amazing song that we're to sing to the Lord. It involves heaven and earth. It involves not just one nation, but many nations, many peoples. And it's supposed to be done day to day. It's never going to fade. It's going to continue on. It's to represent multitudes of people, worldwide praise. And this song that we're supposed to sing is is to be exuberant. I mean, do you catch that with, when you read this? It's, it's very active. It's vibrant. The, the commands are short to praise. And it's a new song. It's exuberant that way, too. It's not an old song. The old songs can contain the new praise that we have, this new experience of grace that we're supposed to feel. Just like old wineskins can't contain new wine. It's a new song, and it's to be done all the time, everywhere. You know, singing used to be much more a part of people's lives years ago. Listen to this description by an historian talking about singing. Singing was such a part of pre-industrial society. In the homes, at work, in the fields, in workshops, wherever people gathered, they sang. Mothers sang to their children, as parents still do, School teachers taught their students through mnemonic rhymes, as teachers of infants still do. In and out of the workplace, people sang during hours of toil and waiting. Weavers had their work songs, sung to the rhythm of the loom. Miners had their distinctive tunes. Shepherds sang and played while they tended their flocks. Even in the marketplace or wherever people gathered, sailors, soldiers, beggars, journeymen all had their particular songs." So that's the idea behind this encouragement for us to sing to the Lord a new song. It's to be done with joy. It's to be very personal, and it's to be exuberant. Listen as an example to how uh, Augustine in the Confessions talked about when he first became a Christian and he went to church and he heard hymns and songs for the first time. Listen to what he said. He says, how I wept during your hymns and songs. I was deeply moved by the music of the sweet chants of your church. The sounds flowed into my ears, and the truth was distilled into my heart. This caused the feelings of devotion to overflow. Tears ran, and it was good for me to have that experience. That's what this psalm is encouraging us to have. Singing from the heart, singing from an experience of grace, Singing to all and singing powerfully. Well, it sounds great, but what's the motivation? Why am I supposed to sing to the Lord a new song? Well, Psalm 96 gives us at least three reasons why. And these are all three reasons which I think are good news reasons. These are all gospel reasons. The first reason is pretty simple. God is great. It says it there in the text. He is great and greatly to be praised. Why? Because he's the creator. And the psalmist wants us to see that in contrast to all the false gods that surrounded the people of Israel. Right? The people of Israel were always in contact with these other nations. Why? Because they lived in that little sliver of land on an ancient trade route called the Via Maris, the way of the sea. And so people from Assyria, Babylon, all those empires in the north, to Egypt in the south, all of them had to go through the nation of Israel. And so they became a conquered nation quite often. You want to control that little sliver of land. And so they became, the people of Israel became very acquainted with all of these false gods, these idols that the other nations worshiped. That's why in verse 5, it says, all the gods of the people are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. And there's a play on words there in the Hebrew that I just want to mention. I think it's funny that the the, the psalmist says, the gods, Elohim, are worshiped by these ethnic groups in reality all they are are idols they're worthless elalim so that's kind of a hebrew funny thing i'm just mentioning that but the psalmist wants us to see this contrast that the gods of these other nations are false gods they don't judge people in a in a fair way in a righteous way only god does and and so We want to see this in contrast, uh, this contrast between God and these other gods in terms of this idea of judging with righteousness and and with equity. Let's look at Psalm 82 real quickly. In Psalm 82, God, in in kind of an imaginary sense, invites these false gods into the divine council, and he, he wants to judge them, and he's going to critique them, And so he says, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. So God, as the supreme Lord of the universe, as the one true judge who judges with faithfulness and righteousness, Critiques these idols, and he says to them, They are false, they are worthless. God is great, and He is great because He is a faithful, just judge. That should be motivation for us to sing a new song. The second reason why we are told to sing a new song to the Lord is that God is is beautiful. Again, I know that sounds simple but it tells us there right in the text. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Verse 9, Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Holiness is another descriptor of beauty. I believe we were created to see and to love beauty. Beauty. We were created to worship God because God is beautiful. We are people who naturally love beautiful things. We go to museums to see beautiful paintings. We go to concerts to hear beautiful music. We love beautiful food. We go to mountains and look at them and go, Wow, this is amazing. We go to the ocean, and we say, this is incredible. All things beautiful in this world draw our attention, and we love them. And not only do we love them, but we love to praise them, right? And C.S. Lewis got this so right in his Reflections on the Psalms, and some of you have heard this quote before. But Lewis got this right when he said, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, but it completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. So Lewis was saying, we love to praise things. We love to verbalize how much we value something when we see it as beautiful, because that completes joy in our hearts. It's not enough just to see something that's beautiful, and it it becomes more of a joy to us when we say, wow, did you see that? That was amazing. That completes the joy for us, and God wants us to have joy when we worship Him. So God is beautiful. That's good news. He is the one true, supreme, beautiful thing. He is fully free, he is utterly rich, and he is supremely good. The third thing that ought to instill praise in us to make us sing a new song, and this is perhaps the most prominent thing in the psalm, is that he reigns. Verse 10, say among the nations, the Lord reigns. We know this in our hearts because the New Testament expresses it even more clearly that God sent his only Son to die on the cross for us. And Paul reflects on this in Philippians chapter 2, where he says, And being found in human form, he, Jesus, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And therefore God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that he is Lord. He reigns. He is Lord. He is King. That image of Jesus reigning as King is so strong that when John, in the book of Revelation, looks to see who the King is, he sees that Lamb, the Lamb of God, who reigns. And so he says, even in Revelation 19, I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the sound of many waters and like the sound of mighty thunder peals, crying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. He is Lord, He is God, He is Almighty. New Testament theologian D.A. Carson said God reigns and everyone, everything, every event, every matter, every thought is finally subject to his sovereignty. He reigns. He's at the right hand of God right now. He reigns over all governments. He reigns over the devil. He reigns over the weather. He reigns over things like Parkinson's and heart attacks. He reigns over everything. And it's a reign, as the scripture tells us, of justice and righteousness. That's the kind of reign that our king has. That's good news. That's great news. But some of you are going to say, it's a nice thought, John. Jesus reigns. I like that. But I look out in the world and I see a mess. So, what gives? Well, this is where we need, again, the wisdom of Scripture. We need to turn to the parable of the wheat and the tares. And that parable, Jesus says, you know what? The kingdom of God is going to be like this field, and I'm planting seeds, and it's going to grow into some beautiful wheat. But there's also going to be someone planting other seeds, weeds, and they're going to grow up together. And someone says, well, shouldn't you just get the good stuff out, harvest it, and get rid of the bad? Jesus says, at the right time, that'll happen. At the consummation, there will be a harvest. But for the meantime, he said, let them grow together. So we live in this in-between time, don't we? We live in this time where... God's will is being done without any contest in heaven. But it's being contested now here on earth. But there's coming a time when that will will not be contested in heaven nor in earth. Well, that's our motivation. That's what should inspire us to sing to the Lord a new song. And I think it should have two major implications for us. First, it ought to give us peace of mind. Christ is ordering the world for his glory and for the sake of the church. That's an awesome thought. That should utterly revolutionize the way that you have to deal with the disorienting world that's around us. If you watch the news with the eye of faith, what you are seeing played out before you are the divine strategies of God. Frankly, I think the politics in Washington, D.C. is depressing and it's disgusting. And that constant lying and the manipulation from politicians, I don't... I can't stand it. I've started not watching it. And those so-called news media are not news media, but they're public relations for the political parties. But you know what? I don't even need to tell you that. You folks are smart enough to figure that out yourselves. We understand the lies and the deception that are happening. And the good news for us is I don't have to be depressed or saddened by the direction of our country because I know that he reigns. He reigns over all political affairs. And that thought should transform our views of the world. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart, think of this, Jesus has the king's heart in his hand. It's like a stream of water and he directs it however he wills. He reigns, and there is a power, his power, that will set things right in the end. He's a might that can be trusted. So I say, put away your depression over the political climate. God's rule brings reliability and stability. He reigns. And the same is true for your own personal life, where there's disruption as well and disorientation. Set aside your anxiety. Set aside those things that are consuming you. He reigns in your personal life as well. The second implication of this wonderful psalm is that it ought to change the way that we worship. We saw it in in the passages which talked about worshiping him, bringing before him an offering. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean to bring before him an offering? The book of Hebrews really sums up well the idea of New Testament worship now. It says this, Through him let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. So worship involves the fruit of our lips. There's that singing from the heart, that very personal, powerful singing of praise. But it goes on. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. That's the kind of worship and offering that God wants us to bring before him. As Paul said in Romans, present your bodies as living sacrifices So New Testament worship involves the fruit of our lips, but it also involves living our lives in a way that reflects his rule, which is a rule of justice and righteousness. So it's a worship of our lips and of our lives. I think Augustine, if I can turn to him one more time, put this so well, and he was commenting on singing to the Lord a new song. He said this, Sing them a new song. Strip off your oldness. You know a new song. A new person. A new covenant. A new song. People stuck in the old life have no business with this new song. Only they can learn it who are new persons. Renewed by grace. Throwing off the old. Sharers already in the new covenant, which is the kingdom of heaven. All your love yearns toward that. And in your longing, our love sings a new song. Let us sing this new song not with our tongues, but with our lives. Augustine got it right. It's singing and singing with our lives. You know, there's nothing more glorious, beloved, than knowing that Jesus Christ reigns as king over all. He reigns over this world and this cosmos and every creature and every power in all creation. So much of the Christian life is discovering and savoring this fundamental truth that Jesus reigns. So sing to the Lord a new song because he is Great, he is beautiful, and he reigns.